for me, it was really a, one of those very few moments in the life of a scientist where you say suddenly, this is really something important. Maybe just at that particular moment in time, you are probably the only human who has thought this thought. <laughs> this is one of the, well, let's say, one of the selfish pleasures of being a scientist. Welcome to Pure Spectrum, where we journey through medicine's overlooked and unexplored corners. Experience what it's like practicing medicine on the International Space Station, operating on an NFL Super Bowl quarterback, treating remote patients in Antarctica, or flying over the burning reactor at Chernobyl. Ride along with a former Navy SEAL physician embedded with elite Delta Force commandos. Meet renowned physicians, economists, researchers, and journalists deconstructing subjects as diverse as psychedelics, meditation, science crowdfunding, artificial intelligence, architecture, and more. Join orthopedic surgeon Dr. Keith Mankin, Colin Miller, and our growing tribe as we explore medicine en route. All right, welcome back. So if you're still around in the year 2061, two things will be true. You'll enjoy seeing firsthand the next passing of Halley's Comet, and your life insurance company will enjoy having collected four more decades of your life insurance premiums without a single payoff. Standing there that day, you and your insurance company can be grateful for the work of one man the exact same man that comet is named for, the English astronomer, mathematician, and physicist Edmund Halley. Why is that? Well, not only did Halley develop the calculations to predict the comet's periodicity, telling you where and when to stand that day, he also developed the early mathematical tools for predicting human longevity, known very well to your insurance company as actuarial science. Today's guest, like Halley, is also a physicist, a theoretical physicist to be exact. And like Halley, he sees no need to limit his research interest to one academic domain. Lawrence Jacobs began his career at MIT pursuing some of the broader mysteries of our universe. Today, he's pursuing an equally ambitious project, quantifying all of the measures, signs, risk models, data sets, bio-wearable monitoring outputs, health history, genomics, and more into perhaps a single accessible number. It's something you may have heard called a health score, something that promises to refine our ability to predict longevity and even perhaps improve it. This was an amazing conversation and, frankly, not a short one. The potential here from these tools are huge, but so are the challenges and complexities. Many of the answers will likely come from surprising and maybe even unexpected places. To quote one of our past guests, Dr. Robert Gale, progress is often made by those who investigate the boundaries of several areas instead of having laser-like focus on a single discipline. That's where many of the answers in science reside. And that's exactly where we find Lawrence Jacobs today, in Zurich, Switzerland, where he continues to develop the main concepts and risk models that underlie the Dakadu Health Score and the Remote Disease Monitoring and Management System, ResMed, from Emmacare. With that said, let's get started. Lawrence, thanks for joining us on this Friday afternoon. We're really excited to, uh, to jump into this with you. My pleasure. So, Lawrence, you've got an interesting background. We have to start here. You are a theoretical physicist, and yet we're going to be talking about risk modeling, health behavior, apps, all sorts of things. So there's, there's some pivot here in your career, and... We're not going to spend yep. a great deal of time on your, your research at MIT and the University of Mexico, but it is interesting. And I was looking through some of these papers here, so I'll, I'll read a couple titles here. Here's Transitions in Lattice Superconductors Induced by Quantum Fluctuations. We've got Axion-Packed Superconductors, Classification Schemes for Statistical Theories. Obviously, everybody listening yep. knows exactly what I'm talking about here, but just in case there's a few people that need to be brought up to speed, maybe... Maybe give us kind of the Carl Sagan version of your career before you got into what you're doing now, what we're going to be talking about. Yeah, perfect. Um, well, I, uh, I studied physics and mathematics in college, and um, I, it was clear to me that I wanted to work in theoretical physics. Uh, 
so after I graduated, I went to MIT and uh, and eventually got a PhD in a field which was very new at the time, which was uh, the beginnings of nonlinear effects in quantum field theory. I won't go into what that means, but um, but it marked a big change in the field of uh, that I was most interested in, which was quantum field theory. Uh, I, I worked in this field for a number of years, uh, and uh, at some point, in fact, another another version of quantum field theory, which is called lattice gauge theories. I was uh, uh, part of a collaboration that that essentially started uh, this field, um, and uh, well, it it took off. It became very popular and. Uh, and it more or less stopped being interesting to me because uh, it moved from uh, from a discovery uh, phase, uh, more or less fundamental applied mathematics, theoretical physics, to an area of application. I mean, still in theoretical physics, but what we did in 1978, 1980, uh, allowed uh, uh, Quantum field theory to be used to to predict um, certain things that were just not calculable before, like the masses of uh, elementary particles, the uh, magnetic moments, uh, and so on. And and so this created a bit of an industry. Lots of people doing very big calculations, proving that quantum field theory predicts or agrees with nature. Uh, uh, thanks to these technologies that we developed. But so I sort of got uh, stopped being very interested in that. And, and, and I moved to another field, which uh, two of the papers you read are very much in this field, which is more uh, in the area of statistical mechanics, uh, condensed matter physics. Uh, and in particular, I got very interested in, in uh, what is now called dynamical systems which are essentially all systems in nature, all real systems are in this category, but that's generally not what is taught in university courses. Idealizations of these systems is what is taught. So anyway, uh, not to get uh, too technical, but these these dynamical systems are nonlinear, which means that Solving them or using them to make predictions is much harder, and they have properties that are that could be considered a little bizarre, like uh, chaos. You know, chaos. These systems can become chaotic, and these are real systems. If you just take a, a double pendulum, a real real double pendulum, and you make it oscillate, it does the weirdest things. And uh, anyway. I got interested in that, and as part of that, together with uh, an old friend and collaborator from the University of Michigan, we uh, we thought of the problem, the following problem. If you are given just the output of a system, like one of the angles in a double pendulum, just as a function of time, you have no other information, just this series of values as a function of time. Can you say whether such a system was produced by a dynamical system or or is it random? 
and noise. So we developed tests, uh, statistical tests, to show uh, that, in fact, the answer is yes. If you have just a series of values in time, you can apply certain measures, certain st uh, statistical mathematical uh, calculations that tell you essentially the probability that such a system is generated by dynamical uh, rules. So at that time, I, I, had, a, I had a student uh, at MIT, a very smart kid. He was uh, getting his degree in electrical engineering and, and theoretical physics. And um, at that time, I was also interested, very interested in neural networks, uh, how they worked and how they could mimic some of the way the brain works. And so I had developed a type of neuron, which was uh, atypical. It was not, uh, not what was used or has been used since then. Now it's a little bit more popular uh, with quantum computers. But anyway, this I'm talking about 1986, 87. So this neuron is just a mathematical uh, Wait, uh, 1987, uh, you were pretty far yeah. ahead of the curve on this, weren't you? Weren't you? Well, you know, in academia, these things uh, uh, are a lot older than they appear really? out in the open. Okay. So, yeah, I mean, like, you know, people are people are talking about today, like this huge development uh, of big data and uh, predictions and uh, uh, deep learning. And so on. we were doing those things in the 80s and the 90s. But but at that time, uh, let's say potential users like banks or insurance companies, uh, whatever, were completely um, uh, unbelieving. It looked like magic to them, and uh, you know they didn't fly very far. But anyway, going back to my student, his uh, thesis problem had to do with neural networks built using these neur this neuron that I had developed, and. Uh, and it was very interesting. I mean, lots of fascinating results came from it. I, maybe in another talk I can discuss that. But basically, one of the most interesting results, which now has been 30 years later verified uh, by uh, neurophysiologists, uh, is that uh, when you have such an object, such a complex object, um, the capacity to recall memories uh, is uh, is related to uh, to memory uh, let's say to noise addition to the memories that are already there this was it was beautiful because you know, if you think about a person uh, anyway a, a mammal any animal with a substantial brain uh, receives uh, a stimulus of hundreds of thousands, perhaps millions of uh, of pieces of data per day, and there's no system that that can um, reliably save and recall that amount of information. So at night, when you sleep, uh, there's there are processes that uh, basically throw away some of the memories that are found to be irrelevant in one way or another, uh, 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 aggregates other memories, etc. So so there's this system of purging that happens in the brain while you sleep, 
which allows us to still learn something new tomorrow, <laughs> not uh, not stop after I don't know age fourteen because there's just no space <laughs> for any any further memories. So uh, my my student was so fascinated by the, these results that as soon as he got his degree, he moved across the street to the Harvard MIT Health Sciences and Technology uh, uh, Institute. And uh, and got a medical degree and is now a well-known neurophysiologist. <laughs> so he stayed in that field. So once he was in this institute, Sean, uh, one day he called me and he said, "Hey, there's a seminar today by some cardiologist, and I think you're going to be interested in it." So I went and I I heard the seminar. It was it was about some data uh, that was collected in, in real time on people who had a sudden cardiac death event. So what happens to the heart minutes and seconds before the person dies or before the heart completely fails. And it was very interesting to see this. And the whole tenet of the, of the presentation was that this was a huge mystery, how instantaneously suddenly the system fails and i you know that's not how nature works there is no such thing everything is preceded by by signals uh, they may be very subtle hard to identify but nothing suddenly happens with no prior changes in the system and so that really got me to thinking and since I was working on this, these issues of, um, of dynamical systems, right. especially I thought, oh, it cannot be possible for a dynamical system to fail in such a discontinuous way. I mean, there's no example that I could know, and all the mathematics that I knew told me it's not possible. So I thought, this is really interesting, and uh, I should learn more. <laughs> And the sabbatical was coming up, so I took advantage of that, and I went to Harvard Medical School and learned some cardiology. I talked to some really smart cardiologists and uh, developed uh, an initial hypothesis of of how how it is that um, that humans, uh, well, animals in general, uh, mammals. Uh, sometimes die suddenly, apparently from a state of complete health to state of zero health uh, in no time, in a matter of seconds or minutes. And uh, so I, I developed a, my first hypothesis. That must have been around 94 or so, 92. And this hypothesis was not verified until about four or five years ago. Uh, and I, I was part of the team that verified it. So th this was a, a huge satisfaction because it came, it, it, was a, it was a big mystery in medicine, especially in the problem where uh, the problem we studied, which is uh, called the long QT syndrome. And uh, this, uh, this uh, uh, group of people with this disease Colin, you probably know what I'm talking about. Um, in this disease, uh, about 30% uh, 
of the people affected, this is congenital disease, about Mm -hmm. 30% of people are asymptomatic and they live to happy old lives. But the other 70% die suddenly and usually early in life. This is a big mystery because there is no way to distinguish uh, these two groups of people. And it, it obviously has uh, is significant because uh, well, we don't like to see people just die with, uh, suddenly. And um, and so we solved this problem, and uh, this this was in fact a, a verification of that hypothesis that I made in the early 90s. So anyway, that's the general area of my research interest is still in this area, but now uh, focused uh, specifically uh, in the area of sudden infant death, so crib death, uh, uh, children who who appear to be perfectly healthy to all known measures, and then suddenly they don't wake up from a nap, or they die suddenly. And uh, uh, I believe I understand the mechanisms, and and now we have uh, we have well sufficient uh, uh, research uh, money to push forward this uh, uh, these hypotheses and do some larger clinical trials. So it was in this uh, context that my my field already more or less dramatically changed from theoretical physics to medicine. Lars, let me pause um, for just a moment here. I'm curious because yeah. we often hear about you know the balkanization of academic departments and universities. People kind of stay in their own own silo, and you know, there's so much pressure to to publish to get grants. You're so narrowly focused on your own goals. It, it seems to me that you had you had a little more freedom to explore your curiosities here to jump around a little bit. Would you describe yeah. that oh, as a little oh, no, more unique in your career compared to other colleagues, or do you think there's more people doing oh, this than we realize? I think there are there are quite a few theoretical physicists or people who trained as theoretical physicists who have moved into medicine. Also, actually, experimental physicists also yeah, have not moved to mention to hedge medicine. funds too. But so, that's a different story. <laughs> for, for sure different story but if i if i if you ask me what i'm doing i'm not doing anything that is dramatically different from the normal evolution of my uh of my rational growth uh because it's simply that the 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 uh, the problems uh, the let's say the subjects of my study are are particular uh systems uh, humans, uh, but but it, it is no different from studying. I don't know the evolution of the cosmos. It, it's just a different place uh, in which you can apply your um, analytical thinking. Uh, and uh, this is I don't know how rare it is. Uh, to me, it's perfectly natural. When we were developing uh, this uh, area of uh, lattice gauge theory, um, I had to learn uh, computing. I, I, I had not learned any. I couldn't even write a single single program uh, at, when I was studying for my PhD. But this is at the time when I was a postdoc, 
and we came upon this interesting problem. And without uh, uh, heavy computing, you couldn't get too far. So I so I learned uh, I learned how to do that, and over time that led to another big uh, development in in my career, which is uh, talking about uh, neural networks and the like, but. But this is uh, this is a little. No, it's around that time, 80s, the late 80s, uh, when uh, when I started getting very interested in in other aspects of uh, of big big sets of data, um, uh, usually representing the development over time of some system or or a collective behavior of many uh, uh, actors, humans or machines, etc. And it was not, I was not the only person thinking about this. It was kind of a hot topic at the time that people were saying um, statistical mechanics, I mean, statistical statistics is not a, a, a science that predicts. Uh, statistics is, a, is a, an activity, uh, an area of mathematics where uh, where you basically are able to disprove a hypothesis. And by disproving a hypothesis, you may conclude the opposite of that hypothesis. That, that's about as far as statistics goes. But we thought there's more things one can do with large collections of numbers, in particular, uh, finding patterns. You know, are there patterns that are more... Uh, more common in a data set than would appear if you thought the data set was produced by some random number generator. And and it was detecting those patterns, identifying them, and then generalizing those patterns into a model. Uh, and the model being essentially a model of whatever it was that created the data. So what mechanism produced this big data set rather than trying to explain a finite set of data points. So this is another area which was developing in my in my brain, my interest at the time. And without that, uh, the kinds of things that I'm doing now, uh, both in, uh, let's say, general health or chronic disease management, and my main interest area, I would not have been able to do these things if I hadn't spent, I don't know, six, seven, eight years working more on the purely data analytical uh, side of things. So that's the way it goes. Uh, yeah. I mean, uh, Keith, that's I have want to just abandon everything else we're going to talk about and just talk about neural networks here, but, uh, but we can't. Yeah, that's right. We don't, well, not, don't, um, don't go to that temptation. No, no, I've got to stop right uh, now. <laughs> let's try to get back to Dakadu. So, yeah, um, so obviously you, you had this, um, this uh, framework, this idea of the interconnectivity and the fact that you could take the massive data sets, how did you uh, find the opportunity to use this in the in the health care field, or at least in the health evaluation field? Okay, this Takadu uh, was a very interesting accident because uh, I was approached indirectly by uh, a, uh, a very successful, very smart uh, uh, entrepreneur, Peter Onimus is his name. He uh, he has ideas. He built company, builds companies, sells them, goes on to the next one. But this one has really captured him. Now he's been at it for eleven years. With I think 
his previous record was three. So <laughs> anyway, uh, Peter Peter knew some of my colleagues at uh, University of Zurich Hospital, and he approached a couple of them with some ideas. And you know, who, do you know anybody who could do this? And both of them say, I don't know, but you should talk to Lawrence. So I don't know if he can do it, but he he would be somebody who might be interested. So then Peter approached me, and uh, and he presented me with his problem. He's an active guy. He's uh, in his 40s, uh, and uh, he likes to ski. And one day after a run, skiing in the mountains, he takes his skis off and starts uh, walking back towards the lift, the chairlift or, or whatever. And he's, uh, he's out of breath. You know, he's, uh, and he worries suddenly, he says, well, how do I know whether I'm not just going to suddenly die, uh, that maybe I'm, in fact, very unhealthy? And so he thought, why is it that and this was his, his brilliant idea? Why, why is it that something as important as health cannot be measured? Uh, why not? We measure temperature. You take a thermometer, put it in your mouth, and out comes a number, and your temperature is measured. So that was his idea. Could health be measured? And he approached me with that, and I, I, I had never thought about that. It was very far from the kinds of things that I was doing or thinking about. But I was intrigued. Uh, so I said, I have no idea, but I want to think about it. So I looked, I looked at the literature, and I was stunned. I was really surprised that in the medical literature, there was nothing that uh, was even worth reading through about how to quantify health. I mean, there were some ideas, but they were... And place us in time here. What year was this about? It was uh, 10 years ago, okay. roughly, yeah, about 10 years ago. So... For example, I, I looked at the at the uh, byline. I mean, the the uh, the description of health by the World Health Organization. You assume they they should be familiar with this concept, and it's it's very funny because the uh, in fact I'm probably get uh, blasted by some of your readers. I mean, there's nothing wrong with the World Health Organization, but but in their charter uh, in 1947. Uh, states that health is the state of perfect wellness uh, and not merely the absence of disease. That's what their their uh, charter says. Now, if okay. you just think about that for a moment, well, you're, it's a circular uh, definition, of course. Right. Uh, you, you have to then please define wellness for me. And if you define wellness by saying that it's a state of perfect health, <laughs> and we're full circle. <laughs> useless, a useless definition. And uh, further, the other piece of it that also kind of impressed me rather negatively was, and not merely the absence of disease, as if that was kind of an easy thing, you know. <laughs> but anyway, anyway, so yeah, can you quantify the absence of disease? And I thought, no, I nobody knows how to do that. That's an interesting problem. So I thought about. And we're this. with you on this, by the way. I mean, uh, David Spiegelhalter, the 
British statistician. He was on a couple episodes ago, and he we talked about this quite a bit that the okay. WHO does have what what could you know in certain people's opinions be political goals are part of their metrics and how they you know compare countries and and health their health uh, metrics. But um, I, I understand yeah. exactly what you're talking about. We've we've definitely covered this in previous episodes. But uh-huh. sorry to interrupt you. I mean deep. deep- no, not at all. I mean, deep down, there's nothing wrong with the WHO, and they do some really good things. But, uh, I mean, they should revise their charter. <laughs> yeah. Okay, that was 1947. Okay, maybe okay. we didn't know much much about health then, but things have changed. So, anyway, I developed a model, I, I mean, a conceptual model of how one could measure health. And... Uh, I I reached the conclusion uh, Peter wanted a single number. Can you say my health is 942? And I said, no, that I cannot do. Uh, A single number, I mean, health is a rather complex, multifaceted thing. And a single number, no, doesn't tell the whole story. But I can definitely tell you whether you are healthier or less healthy that than one other person that I can quantify. So essentially what my conceptual model uh, does is that it, it produces a relative measure of health with a single number. And that works very well. We've validated it against um, huge amounts of data, clinical data, and it works very well. And the idea there is in fact that that WHO little end part that says, and not merely the absence of disease. So basically, uh, in my conceptual model, the complete absence of disease um, would give you a perfect score. And anything less than that gives you a less than perfect score, all the way to zero, which means you are dead. Uh, Actually, you would have died uh, before that. But Anyway, so, yeah, we can put this relative measure of health between zero and whatever number you want. This is an arbitrary thing to say it goes from zero to a thousand. That just doesn't matter. Uh, but these two is lower, lower limit than a higher limit. And, uh, well, it's based on uh, the development of um, many, I mean, several hundred uh, predictive models uh, that uh, that measure the the likelihood or produce the probability that a person is going to have an event within a fixed uh, uh, time. So the event could be death, or it could be that you become uh, hypertensive, or that you get a stroke, whatever, uh, cancer. So that was the idea, and that's how this uh, health score developed. Uh, All these models that predict uh, various things like uh, the risk of of a stroke or or heart attack or arterial disease of one sort of valve disease, anything. And if we cover, my thought initially was if we cover a broad enough area of, let's say, well-recognized cardiovascular first um, outcomes, uh, and then cancer outcomes, uh, then we would cover a very big chunk of 
the field. And I had the, I had a really apotheosis. Uh, I went to, I was invited to London to give a talk, and I, I, at that time, I had already developed a bunch of these uh, cardiovascular predictors and a reasonably good cancer uh, cancer mortality predictor. And as I was kind of refining my calculations at night to prepare my slides for the talk the following day, I just had this thought, what happens if I try to predict cancer death by just using the cardiovascular models, turn off the cancer models, run the programs again, and see how accurately I can predict cancer death. And it was kind of an intuitive thought that I, I thought there is really a concept of disease and that disease is something that usually gets larger and, uh, and uh, overwhelming and usually ends with your life, but that the specific diseases, whether it's um, uh, gastroenterological or cardiovascular and so on, that is less uh, important you get sick, the system starts failing, right. and the particular route of failure uh, can vary from one individual to another, but you should be able to, and that was really my goal, my scientific goal with this was to think, you should be able to tell that the system is beginning to fail. Far less important from that, from this conceptual perspective, is whether it's going to fail because of uh, pancreatic cancer, or a fulminating uh, 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 heart attack. And so I turn off the cancer models and end up predicting cancer using only typically cardiovascular risk factors. Uh, and this was a wonderful, uh, I, I mean, for me, it was really a, one of those very few moments in the life of a scientist where you say suddenly, this is really something important and you know and maybe just at that particular moment in time you are probably the only human who has thought this thought <laughs> this is one of the well, let's say one of the selfish pleasures of being a scientist but anyway so i'm almost feeling it with uh, you right now lawrence it's, this is yeah, fascinating <laughs> I, yeah, well, let, me, let me let me stop for just a quick second because this is, I really want to talk about the inputs to this score and how you weigh the different variables. I think that's that's really interesting. But just yeah. so we're all on the same page here, so this is a 0 to 1,000 score. So I guess we could think about it like a credit score that we use here in the U.S. I'm, I'm sure they have something – they kind of have something similar, similar in Switzerland with the banking industry there. But as we see it, you, you know, the higher score you have, the more access to credit you have, and from the bank side of the – side of the fence, they look at it as, the, you know, the better chance you have of repaying the loan um, and the better yeah. creditworthiness yeah. you have. So it's pretty simple. It, it, the inputs that go into that and how they weigh it are proprietary for the three big uh, credit rating agencies here in the U.S. I'm sure it's similar in Switzerland. Yeah. But what what is the score that Dacadu produces telling the patient yeah. or the user? Is it telling them okay. their longevity probability? Is it telling them uh, well, you need to look at the data a little well, closer and see where the specific risks, risks are? What, what is that score telling them, just very simply? Longevity uh, follows from, 
from these calculations. It's not the goal of the calculations, but we have now developed a model that uh, using the models, the risk models in Dakadu, is a pretty good predictor of longevity. But Dakadu, for, partly for commercial and conceptual reasons, they prefer this abstract score. And anyway, that's what they produce. But fundamentally, deep down, Dakadu is a bunch, many, many risk models. Um, I, I would say that I don't have much uh, uh, respect for the credit risk models that uh, that those big uh, three companies do in the U.S. They're simplistic. I mean, those yeah. people are still in the market where basically it's a seller's market. People mm -hmm. want credit. They come to you. You pick and choose. You minimize your risk, which is really a foolish thing to do. And it's part of the reason why the big crash of 2008 was so big was because you don't want to minimize risk. You want to optimize it. So mm -hmm. how, how, well would a, 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 how would a lender minimize his risk? Well, it's a trivial thing. You don't need models for that. Stop lending. End of story. You have zero risk. You also don't make any money. So, uh, But the mindset in the, in the traditional credit uh, business is more or less at the level that insurance companies were maybe five or six years ago, where, again, they, they were the deciders. People, would, they would decide whether or not to give you a, a life insurance. Uh, and so they had the luxury of being extra conservative. We have uh, developed uh, also part of my more recent uh, but past life uh, better, much better predictors for credit uh, risk. And uh, uh, two of the big uh, credit card and banks uh, here in Switzerland use our models. They're much better than those uh, scorecards that uh, Experian and whatever the other ones are called. I've forgotten their names. But anyway, but it, it is somewhat similar uh, uh, with health. Look, there are a couple of things one has to uh, do here. First of all, if I have the luxury of getting all the data that I want, I can predict very accurately what's going to happen in the next five to 10 years uh, as far as health is concerned. But you can't get all the data you want. That's a very expensive thing and, and generally quite difficult uh, to get. So. Dakadu is a company, and they're very successful selling their products. And what they want is uh, to make it easy for people to, to start using their products. And so you have to weigh uh, uh, the value uh, of data, of, of inputs, against the cost and against, the, let's say, the difficulty of, um, of entering into the system. So... That was a hard constraint uh, because what are the simplest things that cost no nothing and uh, and that lead to reasonable predictions? Well, four numbers. What is your age? What's your sex? What's your height? And what's your weight? That takes you pretty far, but not far enough. I mean, as far as I'm concerned, I, I, I needed many other things. For example, blood pressure. Uh, fasting glucose, etc. Uh, so 
what we had to do there was to allow users to input only these four numbers, but then basically create create all the additional information that our models required. So that came in the form of other models. So uh, given these four basic inputs, you need to be able to predict what is the blood pressure of the individual, at least as a first pass. And uh, with, uh, with those four numbers and blood pressure, try to predict cholesterol, for example. So we developed this hierarchical imputation engine, which takes uh, input uh, data, whether it's only those four numbers or it's 100 numbers, and feeds them to our models. And whenever there is a, a missing uh, value for one of the variables that our models need, this variable itself is predicted. So, so these would be like course, strong covariates, right? So, so blood pressure and cholesterol are, are a little stronger you know, than maybe yeah. um, know, coffee intake or something like that, you know. Of course. Yes. Of course. That's correct. But if you, if you think about this, none of these values is independent of all the other values. Right. The human, I mean, the organism is not separated into Linux. It's a, it's a one whole system that works as a whole. And if your pancreas fails, your kidneys are going to find out and your liver is going to find out, etc. So, so when you're looking at, the, at these data, for example, uh, kidney disease, uh, and, and you, there, there are some, well, Colin, you know exactly what, what this is, but there, there are some fairly simple things to, to get in a laboratory, like creatinine, uh, serum creatinine, for example, that would tell you how well your kidneys are doing. But so serum creatinine, because it somehow measures kidney disease, uh, it is associated with uh, some pancreatic function and some uh, liver function, etc. So the idea of imputing numbers by just using standard mathematical imputation is not optimal here. It's much better to impute missing, missing variables by using other variables that tell you real hard evidence about how the system is working, how the organism is working. So essentially, you're, you're looking for you know, easier variables to measure, right? Because anybody can go to a drugstore and get their blood pressure measured. But having a metabolic exactly. panel done, you know, you should do that once yeah, a year if you're having exactly. a physical, but, you you know, most people don't. So you're looking for the low-hanging fruit is what you're saying and then seeing what the else that can predict. Low-hanging fruit, exactly. You know, you can, everybody knows or can get their weight and their height and uh, uh, their age is a pretty easy thing to guess. But, um, but blood pressure and glucose and cholesterol are really important in determining the risk of a whole bunch of possible endpoints. So you want to, you want to incentivize people to, to produce these variables, uh, but you don't want to scare them away. Now, in what may appear to be an unrelated thing here, but in fact, it is very closely related, the Dakadu's real big business now is not just a Dakadu um, health application. It is 
those models that we developed to derive the score that uh, life insurance companies have approached Takadu and said, hey, could we have access to the internals? <laughs> the score is fine. This number is fine. But could, we would like to know what the risk of somebody developing pancreatic cancer over 10 years is. Can you tell us that? And uh, uh, these uh, now has become a, really a, a very big part of Dakadu's business. They have um, they have uh, uh, well a version of our models running in in the, uh, quite a few large uh, life insurance companies uh, as a uh, as a, a much more accurate way of measuring uh, measuring the risks that these companies are interested in. For example. It opens a, 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 a lot of uh, different uh, business avenues for these companies. For example, if you are, I don't know, 60 years old and uh, diabetic, uh, no, no insurance company gives you a life insurance because you're too high a risk. Well, that's kind of foolish because if you can understand risk accurately enough, you can make money on any uh, set of events. It's understanding the risk where the that the key uh, where the key is at, and so um, there are a couple of companies now that are making products. This is one of the I, the intellectual property things. I can't go into detail, but that are using are are making insurance life insurance products for people with specific chronic disease. Interesting. So the premium. The premium is a little higher, whatever, but you can get it because they understand the risk. Uh, if you see how, how life insurance uh, normally prices their products, uh, this is a 300-year-old business. And they've been doing it the same way with some slight improvements over the years. But uh, essentially, you, uh, well, you pay for the risk cases uh from the from the premia of the low risk cases and you know it's like a a legal ponzi scheme <laughs> you, take, you you know and uh, and the point is that where do you estimate the risk well right. they figured they figured hey look let's just take the average and uh and uh, let's look at the statistics in in our country how many people died uh, at age A uh, this year, and how is that changing over time? These these are so-called life tables. It's not very different from from the credit scoring that is done today. But this is hey, look, age, sex, uh, and uh, whether you smoke or not. That should give us a pretty good idea. Well, it does give you a pretty good idea. By the way, smoking was only added recently, about 10 years ago, before they thought age and sex was sufficient. No kidding. And so what what those things do, these life tables, is they are accurate because they represent a very large population. They're accurate at the level of the mean, of the average uh, risk of the population. No point refining it further. So... Everybody is charged a premium based on that uh, average risk with a few points above just to be on the safe side. But in fact, if everybody was charged for a premium, 
that that was uh, that depended depended on their actual risk of death, a more accurate uh, risk of death, then some people at low risk would pay a much lower premium, much lower than the mean. And this is what's happening now in, in insurance companies because the the uh, the competition is so brutal that everybody would like to give an insurance, a life insurance to anybody who asks for it, but they, they're aware that they cannot do it. But if they can find people with lower risk than the median, they're already winning. And they can still support people with risk above the median because it gets uh, financed by the lower risk cases. So in a nutshell, this second product of Dakadu, which uh, they call the risk engine, I think they still call it that, um, is uh, is a big deal for insurance companies because it allows them to estimate risk better and potentially, you know, in 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 a sort of ideal uh, universe, potentially their their uh, premia are going to be more fair. They will be uh, they will be tuned to particular risks of yours, which can be changed. Many of them can be changed through lifestyle improvement, which is Dakadu's initial application. So the Dakadu Health Score relies on people using this abstract uh, number to compete, to push against each other, etc. By doing what? By eating better, by exercising, by uh, trying to reduce stress, by sleeping better. So those modifiable risk factors really have an effect, a very important effect on longevity, on uh, on the risk of uh, dying within the next 10 years, and so on. And so that's the Dakadu uh, goal, is to push people to improve their health. It's the same goal as an insurance company, of course. And that's why insurance companies are also buying the basic uh, Dakadu health score because it reduces their risk and that's uh, therefore increases their profit. Well, let's anyway, put time out here. Um, uh, we've, we've hit the yeah, hour. Do you, do you have a little more time? Uh, I, know you, I have. Keith, are it's you okay if we take a little up. more time? Yeah, sure. Yeah, because we got <laughs> yeah. We want to keep going here, so we'll we'll, we'll do a, for, a firm cutoff in about thirty minutes because oh, um, that that perfect. that way won't go that's, too far. But uh, if that's okay with you, Lawrence, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, listen, it, it, no, it's good. I need a little more time. I tend to, you know, I've been uh, teaching basically all my adult life, and I get into lecture mode, and so <laughs> it's hard to turn me off. Quick, so so I've got a presentation I printed out from some. One of the executives in, in Dakadu, this is 2018, so a couple years ago, probably still pretty close. So it shows all of the inputs that go into their app. So it's everything from your demographics, of course, family history, um, pre-existing conditions, uh, metabolic panels, blood tests, um, you know, blood pressure. Yeah. There's also a psychometric se- uh, section, so I assume those are it's a questionnaire. Uh, lifestyle yeah. reporting, which lifestyle reporting can be problematic. Sometimes people don't want to admit that they drink more than a glass of wine every night or that they, you know, yeah. drink 10 cups of coffee or something. Yeah, sure. We can talk a little bit about that. And then other lifestyle components that probably come from a tracker, which 
it's funny because my wife just bought me one of these things this week, so I was just playing with it yesterday. So this is the, uh, what is this? The uh, Fitbit Versa. So I'm I'm testing it out and trying okay. to decide if I want this one or the okay. Apple Watch. But it's continually yeah. monitoring my um, my blood oxygen saturation and my heart rate, even as we've been talking yep. here this morning. And I assume that's a component here. So what I'm interested in here, Lawrence, and what you've learned from this, have or have you? You know what? What are the strongest factors here? Are behavioral factors that we have control over? Do those have a bigger effect overall on the score and the predictability? Or you know, does family history and genetics play a, a, a pretty large portion? You know, how much uh, how much ability do we have to actually change the score, make ourselves more viable to get life insurance, and you know, increase our longevity? Have you been able to get yeah. a sense of that by? Going through these models. Yeah, yeah, of course. I mean, it's a central question. It's, uh, it's of course, a, a very important one. And uh, I, I'll take that from the from the perspective of, of health and uh, and health science, and not so much uh, the commercial side because uh, those don't always uh, uh, agree completely. So, one thing. First of all, of course. Uh, uh, genetic uh, uh, risks are important, generally not determining, and today very expensive. So y- you can't you can't get uh, assume that you're going to have everybody's genome just uh, because you would would be cool to have it. Uh, so the next best thing, of course, is uh, familial uh, risks. Uh, which also work uh, reasonably well, that definitely affect uh, the risk. But the, the, you're really a central question, which factors are most important, is a very difficult one to ask because it depends on a specific endpoint. However, in quite general terms, I could say that the classic ones are the most important. And these are blood pressure, uh, uh, glucose. Uh, uh, but but I, I want to come back to, to that because this is what led us to create uh, Vemsmith. So blood pressure, glucose, the lipid uh, uh, panel. Th- these are the key ones, and they're important for all outcomes, really all of them, including cancer. I come back to that in a second. So the importance, the relative importance of these really does depend on the specific endpoint you're looking at. But but those are, all these classic risk factors are really at the center of things. Adiponectin or, or you know, LPA, uh, lipoprotein, these are important, but they don't compete with uh, blood pressure. Blood pressure or, or glucose uh, uh, control um, are, are, let's say, much louder uh, signs of disease than you can get from any individual, let's say, non-standard uh, uh, predictor. Creatinine, you know, it's super important, but right. creatinine is very important to determine some things, which those things like kidney disease eventually lead to death, uh, so that means that creatinine is critical to determine cardiovascular risk. But, you know, it's kind of hard to see that. It, it, it's a longer-term thing. 
But so the relative uh, importance of predictors depends very much on the endpoint. However, uh, it was exactly thinking about this question that I developed uh, something that I'm very excited about. Um, And this is something that I call the index of metabolic dysfunction. And this is a single measure of of this um, gradual decay in health uh, with age uh, that we were talking about earlier. There is something, as you well know, that people call the metabolic syndrome. And metabolic syndrome includes, well, blood pressure, glucose, lipids. Uh, but it's not a quantitative measure. You can't use it in an equation. It's, you know exactly what I'm talking about, right. but it is not something that lends itself to mathematical uh, uh, use. So we developed something that agrees with the metabolic syndrome determination where it should, but otherwise is a continuous measure of the decay of the metabolic system, which I claim is at the center of aging, at the center of the general decay of health. And uh, we've tested this now and uh, with the uh, the advent of a much bigger data set, which we will hopefully get soon. This is the one from the uh, UK Biobank. Um, we will then be able to complete this model. And I think that as a measure Uh, let's say, a single measure, something that a clinician can do in his office uh, with um, not much effort, it's a single number. It's a probability, and and it's a number between zero and one, and it it tells you how healthy you are, I mean, in some some really quantitative sense. In a sense, it's similar to what we ended up doing uh, for the Dakadu health score. Anyway, that I deviated a little bit from that. And that's research that is not completed. We're working on that. But uh, but anyway, your question is key, and uh, it, there is ample evidence about the effect of um, modifiable risk factors on on risks on all the standard classic risks, uh, and they are very important. So, of course, smoking. Smoking is an obvious one, and smoking uh, leads to decay in every part of the organism, ultimately. Uh, but um, a lack of uh, physical activity is quite damning in itself, um, and stress. Uh, these are, I think, the three big ones. Uh, stress, which is not unrelated to the other two, to the previous two, uh, stress, uh, how does a person handle, um, I don't know, personal or work conflicts? Uh, this is a deep thing and very difficult to measure. In fact, we don't really know how to measure stress. We don't even know exactly what stress is because we can't measure it exactly. Uh, the psychometrics for stress will take you half of the way, but but uh you can't you can't really today measure it i think but it's critical it affects sleep it affects digestion it affects uh, you know really central uh 
central functions uh, of the organism, and it can be controlled to an extent. Uh, there are uncontrollable aspects of stress. Uh, I just read a paper today about very interesting uh, uh, study that uh, uh, about uh, uh, trauma, how people handle trauma. And uh, this, this is uh, something done by some old friends of mine, and, well, it's a big collaboration, uh, that basically asked the question, why is it that some people, let's say, go through traumatic experiences like, like uh, PTSD? Some people recover quickly. Others never recover. Is there, is there a physical measurable difference between these two groups? And they did this wonderful analysis with functional MRIs, and they, they came to the conclusion that, in fact, there are definitely types subtypes here and that and that they these subtypes depend on actual wiring in the brain so some people are better able to uh, uh, to risk to, to recover from uh, from trauma uh, and uh, I I kind of extrapolate that to say that uh, that most stress is one way or another caused by some kind of trauma Wait, so, I, I know we're going to get off track here. But so it's yeah, not really personality types or background. They're doing maybe a functional MRI and looking at imaging in the brain, and that's how they're determining who is a higher risk for recovering from PTSD. That's what that paper was saying? Absolutely. Really I mean, they distinguish these two groups. They really distinguish these two groups, and the, 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 the research is, uh, is convincing, which that? doesn't mean they can do anything about it now, but like many cases of disease, it points to potential treatments. So without knowing what's broken, it's kind of hard to fix it. And, uh, and this is this is fascinating. But it all goes in the direction of nothing that happens to to you. Um, you know, all chronic diseases are one way or another related, etc. And this is what. Uh, led us to create this other platform, which we call EMA. And this EMA is, uh, I'll just say what the three functions, three things that it does. It measures, so it is constantly collecting data. It processes uh, these data. It feeds predictive models with these data, and those models potentially produce alerts. These alerts, which can be d differing degrees of, uh, of severity, the alerts don't go to the, to the individual who is being measured and monitored. They go to his or her doctor. So, so this system is essentially a very smart communication system between people who are sick, who have chronic uh, diseases, and their health providers. And it's constant. It, it is dynamical, runs 24 hours a day, every day. And in the end, you know, what's happening, there's, a, there's another revolution that we're in the middle of. And, you know, you have a Fitbit device which costs a couple of hundred dollars or something that measures SpO2 and measures your pulse and your steps and all these things. And it's a tiny little thing. Well, 
the uh, the development of of sensors is, as you well know, is a, a giant a giant revolution going on now. So when we were thinking about Emma, I was thinking, look, today we can measure a whole bunch of things with cheap sensors, uh, but tomorrow we're going to be able to measure m- many more of these things. It's going to happen. It's happening now. And in the end, what you can't measure with sensors, you can ask. If you ask correctly, you can get a lot of very useful information. Uh, it, it, it's, it's fascinating how really how much your brain knows about your state of health. Uh, when this big uh, UK study uh, that I mentioned a moment ago, the UK Biobank, when it had been running for six years with 500,000 uh, uh, subjects, the first few, the first analysis could be done at that time. So there were already quite a few events after six years. And it's a very broad uh, study. It's much broader than Enthane's or the Framingham. I mean, it's a really carefully planned, enormous uh, study. So it included also psychometrics, um, as uh, as we call them. And one of the questions was, uh, in, from a scale of uh, zero to 100, how healthy do you think you are, with 100 being perfectly healthy? Well, th- this is self-assessment. People have an idea of how healthy they are. What was amazing to me and to many others was the power, the predictive power of that question. I mean, it comes close to hypertension in predicting cardiovascular disease. That really disease. That shocks me. I, I would have thought the opposite. It's extraordinary. You know, when people are asked, asked a question in the right way, they are likely going to answer truthfully if they feel threatened, um, uh, if they feel embarrassed about it, or then the answer is worthless. And people who design surveys are well aware of this, and there are all these techniques on how to ask a question. And in fact, in some cases, you ask a question at least two times using a very different approach. And it's in the coincidence of the answers that you find the, the true answer. Uh, uh, I mean, uh, uh, this, is, this is well known to survey designers, and it's, it's now also done uh, for measuring health. Here's a trivial one. Um, have you ever been diagnosed by a physician as being diabetic? Uh, no, no, never. Okay, are you taking glucose-lowering medication? Yeah, I take metformin. Okay, so the first question, are you a diabetic? Good Lord, no. <laughs> the second question, well, you are, okay, because you're taking medication for Well, diabetes. except, Lawrence, if you so, listen to one of our past guests, David Sinclair, the Harvard geneticist, there's other benefits of taking metformin, but uh, not that he advocated that or we do, but uh, there might be other reasons people are doing that. I agree. I agree. I agree. Metformin is still considered one of the sort of magic drugs, but, but anyway, so... Uh, people are likely to answer uh, a question more honestly if it's asked correctly. Sure. But 
okay. We again got sidetracked, or I got sidetracked uh, from Emma. The idea here was you know, Dakadu is meant uh, the, the the standard Dakadu product, the one you can download from from the web, is meant essentially for healthy people. So not perfectly healthy, but you know people who are mobile and uh, who exercise and uh, and so on. Not when we designed that, we were not thinking about people with let's say substantial disease. Uh, so there are all these disclaimers because really Dakadu is not meant for people with cardiovascular disease. Although I would say in general it's perfectly safe. But what we thought we I now mean this other company, Remsmith, another group of uh, colleagues of mine, we thought the area of chronic disease is not covered, certainly not by Dakadu, and I believe not by any other product uh, or any other system that is out there today, it, it, at least in the sense that I think this would be maximally useful. Uh, Chronic disease, as as you know, is today a huge uh, problem. I, I mean, financially uh, and otherwise, quality of life. People live longer, and therefore they get sick of more things. Uh, and and this has a an overall uh, uh, economic financial impact, which is growing. But the situation is even worse than that. It is that. At the current growth of um, chronic disease in the world, the time will come, and sooner rather than later, where hospitals will not be able to admit patients because the number, the growth in the in the number of qualified physicians is much slower, but but much much slower than the growth in in, in the uh, in the weight of chronic disease in the world. So, so what do you do? I mean, you have to, you really have to think of better ways of, of managing chronic disease. And that was our goal. And to some extent, we, we have reached that goal, of, at least in some areas. So it's a newer, it's a newer effort and, uh, uh, and it's a bigger one in the sense that it's more complex. Uh, uh, but but the idea is is that we we basically and now it's being in fact uh, currently in a clinical trial at my hospital at the University of Zurich Hospital uh, and and the idea is that um, uh, we might through our system or other systems essentially develop uh, a virtual hospital all the functions of a hospital except. For the physical plant and uh, and associate, there's no uh, surgical room in Emma, uh, but the physical plant, uh, which is run by the by by the uh, the administration of a hospital and by the doctors in the hospital, will stay there. That we can't change, but uh, but we can change the load uh, uh, to the system coming from uh, people who are sick. Uh, because most many of the things that happen with chronic disease can be prevented, 
And many of the things that happen with people with chronic disease can be taken care of without going into an emergency room. So anyway, I know it's now it's a little rushed. I'm looking at my clock and uh, reaching the hour and a half. Uh, but uh, yeah, I mean, I'm very excited about uh, about yeah, I can see why. I, it's, uh... I, the impact. The impact is probably. I mean, that could do also if you think about millions of people who are who are thinking about their well-being and are trying to get more uh, healthy. Uh, or you think about uh, people with uh, two or three or five chronic diseases who are seriously taxing the, the medical system and who have a horrible quality of life. You know, we're talking about millions and millions of people. And uh, my central research interest, sudden infant death, well, in, in Switzerland, uh, 40 babies are going to die in the next 12 months without us knowing exactly why and without us being able to prevent it. Okay, this is a huge, horrible problem, and that that's the problem I want to solve. But it will affect a much smaller number of people. Dakadu and Emma, um, are, at least uh, the ambition is that these will go out there and, and potentially help uh, many millions of people. So it's also very exciting. Amazing. So, Lawrence, yeah, we're coming close to the time here. Um, I feel exactly yep. like I did last year. I was talking to Robert Gale, who was the oncologist invited by the USSR uh-huh. to treat victims of Chernobyl, and he was just getting on the helicopter to go over the <laughs> to tour the burning reactor, and we we're hitting the hour. So I said, "Hey, can we do a part okay. two on this? We got to do it." And I feel the same way today. There's so much more I want to talk with you about. So. I got to ask you, you know, we'd love to have you come back on and do a part two for this if you'd be, be willing. With, with pleasure, Colin. It would be my pleasure. Keith, do you have anything else you want to ask real quick before we? Yeah, yeah. Just, just quickly summing things up. Can you give us a sense, and this may be something that's going to take way too long and we need to, to go into the second uh, episode. What has been the clinical acceptance of Dakadu? Are are doctors asking for it? Are doctors looking at it? And do you have any sense what doctors are doing with the score when they get it? Uh, no, Dakadu is. Uh, you think about this. Uh, Dakadu is not a medical application. Right. Uh, uh, Rimsmith Emma is a medical application, but it's a passive one, so class two A from uh, the regulator perspective. But Dakadu is not. Dakadu doesn't give any advice which can be considered medical. The advice that it gives people is, hey, walk more or eat better. I mean, and it has this dynamical system that says, uh, you know, you should eat more vegetables. And and it interacts with the user in a very intelligent uh, feedback loop and so on. The idea there is it's giving health, general health advice. Doctors like it. Uh, they like it, but they don't, I mean, they may recommend it to their patients, but they don't use it for clinical uh, work. Emma, on the other hand, uh, is very is in a different category because, look, if a person shows up in an emergency room and this person shows all the signs of uh, being just about to have a heart attack or being in the middle of an acute event, 
and uh, the, the the people the the response from the physicians is is instant and and very uh, very competent very accurate. The person is treated for an acute uh, uh, cardiovascular event, and the life of the person is saved. So there's some preventive measure, potentially surgery, whatever. However, these people cannot, from the symptoms seen by in the emergency room, they cannot discover that this individual also happens to have a severe case of heart failure or a severe case of of, of, of chronic obstructive uh, pulmonary disease, because many of the symptoms are similar, and uh, they deal with what's out on the surface. However, Emma couldn't care less. Emma is looking at everything. Emma right. doesn't get fooled by some, you know, very powerful symptoms. It's looking at all the symptoms. So, in a sense, that what Emma would do in a case like this. Although I think really the paradigm, what we want is to change this paradigm. We want to switch from somebody showing up in the emergency room and, and going through this incredible procedure and ending up uh, staying alive because we are very good at keeping people alive. We want to change that. What we would like is that, oh, a physician gets some alerts on his or her computer and uh, it calls Mr. Smith, hey, Mr. Smith, next week you should come over. We want to do some tests. And, and, and so not going to react to an acute myocardial uh, infarction. We're going to prevent it from happening. Right. And it's, it's quite feasible. You know, we can do it today. And, and that is what is going to be harder to get the medical community to accept. But. People are getting very excited by this. I mean, especially younger, younger physicians. Whenever I give a talk about this, people get really turned on because the idea of preventing rather than, than reacting is a very attractive one. And it, it's, it's not a pipe dream by any means. We can do it today. So anyway, that's Emma is um, so the other part of the spectrum here. Incredible. But did I, uh, uh, Keith? Did I answer your question, or I got you, maybe you did? No, you bit. did. And then, uh, and then the uh, follow-up question I was between Bakadu and Emma. Any closer to being able to predict uh, which person is going to have the sudden cardiac death in order to to step in as you were? I think you already addressed that. Um, yeah. but obviously that's the tie in. I mean, the whole point of this is to say, okay, yeah. this is your, this is your overall health. This is the, what's hiding among the, the reeds, if you will. And we need to, to do other tests. We need to step in, we need to treat this to prevent that from happening. So, yeah, yeah, no, that's the, that's sort of the purview of, of AMA and not right. so much stuck and do. I mean, I can do, you, you have a low score, your risks are high. But Dakadu's not going to tell you your, your risks of this or that are high. Mm -hmm. The insurance companies are now knowing that because Dakadu has given them access to, to our models. But, uh, but that is really one of the things that, that is a, an integral part of EMA. Because people have some death events uh, uh, triggered by something else. And EMA is looking at this at every possible measure constantly 
And, you know, when we're talking about, well, how important is blood pressure how, relative to glucose or, or lipids in determining this or that? Well, the problem is not so much. And, and one of the reasons you can't answer that question uh, adequately is because blood pressure, glucose, lipids, these are point measures. And none of them, is, none of them remains constant. For example, uh, Colin, you're you're looking now at your daily pulse. The thing is measuring your pulse right. every five minutes or whatever. Look at that time series if you can. You're going to be flabbergasted because it is absolutely not constant. What is a proper? Uh, what is the the, the healthy uh, uh, resting heart rate? Well, it's the wrong question. Is it 60? You know, usually we're saying, hey, look, yeah, you should try to keep it between 60 and 70, et cetera. If it goes higher, you should be careful. If it goes much lower under some conditions, you should also be careful. Well, that's not a measure. It's how is pulse changing over time? How is blood pressure changing over time? How is heart rate changing over time? This, these uh, these are. This is the way that we can find out how the system is actually functioning, not point uh, measures. Today we can measure a bunch of things as continuous time series, including SpO2 now in some devices. But blood pressure is coming, beat to beat, beat by beat. Blood pressure using only light. I've already seen two devices tested them in our lab. Uh, glucose already continuous. I, I have one in my arm that I'm testing now. These things will tell us a great deal more. And it's coming and it's unstoppable. All right. With that said, Lawrence, it is, uh, we're in the middle of our morning here, Keith and I, Keith and Dallas, yep. I'm in North Carolina, but um, you're in Zurich and it's what, four th almost five o'clock. So it's, you're almost ready to get your weekend started. 430. Yeah, yeah so. well, at least uh, at least a glass of wine. That's right, yeah. exactly. So, yeah, we'll just we won't call this a stop. We'll just call this the end of part one because uh, there's about twenty seven different things we still have to talk about. Uh, just absolutely okay. fascinating, sure. Lawrence. Uh, I really enjoyed this this morning. This is thank you, thank you. My my pleasure. Thanks for joining us on Peer Spectrum. Please support the show by writing a review on iTunes and join the conversation at PeerSpectrum.com. Keep up with the latest episodes and share your ideas with us on Twitter, Facebook, or email at PeerSpectrum.com. <laughs>